1 Samuel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Well, the Western Wall in Jerusalem has its foundations, uh, in its foundations, the Great Western Stone. It's one of the largest foundation stones in the world. It weighs around 250 tons. And at Baalbek in Lebanon, well, there are foundation stones there weighing 1,000 tons. They're so heavy that they've actually never been able to be moved from the quarry that they were cut in in Roman times. 
And these foundation stones, they're the basis of buildings. The buildings are established on them. And whilst we don't use foundation stones like that to build nowadays, generally, and all around us in the city, tower blocks are going up. Well, they've got foundations, haven't they? 22 Bishopsgate, you'll be pleased to know, has foundations 65 metres deep. And for obvious reasons, well, the foundations come first. They're established first. And we're thinking this morning in these passages about the foundations of God's salvation. In these early chapters of 1 Samuel, we find ourselves in Israel. And it's a time of great darkness. There was an absence of faithful leadership, a vacuum of the knowledge of God. And that vacuum was filled with, well, human pride, human arrogance, ignorance. And the result was great distress and affliction. That was Israel then. And it's not dissimilar from the world we live in today. But we saw in chapter 1 a glimmer of hope. A boy. The boy was born to Hannah and Elkanah in response to Hannah's prayer. And in response to his birth, well, Hannah prayed again. And you might remember chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She praises the Lord for his salvation. She recognized the birth of Samuel was not just about her. It was about his salvation plan. And it was great, a moment of great hope and joy. Because in the deepest of darkness, the Lord has a salvation plan. And this week we're asking, well, what does that salvation plan look like? What, if you like... Does it look like for God to move it forward? Or perhaps, to put it another way, what are the foundations of God's salvation? And here in Hannah's prayer, that well, there was a hint that the Lord would accomplish his salvation through a king. We saw that he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But we don't meet a king yet. We meet a boy. The boy Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 11 Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Do you remember the film from about 20 years ago, the Hugh Grant film, About a Boy? Well, through these chapters, we could say it's about a boy. We're directed to watch the boy. We're looking for the big thing God is doing through him. Because by the end, if you flick over to chapter 3, verse 20, we read these remarkable words. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. We see God's salvation plan move forward, and the first thing he does is establish his word. So if you want a key verse for this morning, 3, verse 20, Samuel was established as a prophet for the Lord. And if you prefer two key verses, well, what about 4 verse 1? The word of Samuel came to all Israel. God's word is the foundation of his salvation. And we'll see this morning how wonderful this is. Because, well, as we head into Shiloh and meet the sons of Eli, well, we'll see that where God's word is absent, darkness is very great. And this is our first point, the darkness where God's word is absent. Chapter 2, verse 12, we meet the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. 2, verse 12, now the sons of Eli 
were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It's a pretty desperate description, isn't it? These men are the priests of Israel. One writer summarizes that their role is to have been appointed by God as mediators to receive his revelation, to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, and to represent the people before the Lord. They should be leading God's people in flourishing to know his blessings, and instead they bring darkness. This is all happening at the time of the judges. And in Judges, we read of distressing darkness and distress in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you flick back to chapter 3, verse 1, well, we read what else was true in those days. 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. No king, the word of the Lord rare. And where the word of the Lord is rare, well, the vacuum is filled by, well, human invention, human ideas, human pride. If we're not submitting to God's word, well, we're inevitably deciding what's right ourselves. To receive God's revelation is humility. To resist it is pride. It's the attitude of living life by doing what's ever right in our own eyes. Do what feels best to you. Follow your heart. Enjoy yourself and love yourself. Be whatever you want to be. Just don't hurt anyone. Well, if we ignore our maker's words, the reality is we will hurt people and we'll hurt ourselves, and we know that's what happens. It's what we read about in Romans chapter 1. They became futile in their thinking as they suppressed God's truth, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So where there's an absence of God's word, where it's ignored... Well, instead of flourishing, there is darkness. And we see it in Hophni and Phinehas. Instead of serving those who come to sacrifice at Shiloh, well, they're robbing them. Look at verse 14. They meet the worshippers with a trident. Verse 14, the servant would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot the trident and the fork, and all that the fork brought up, the the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites that came there. And not only did they rob the people, well, they treated the Lord with contempt. In God's law, the fat of the sacrifice was to be burned up as an offering to him. But here, the priests, well, they steal his food to fatten themselves. Verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They're mistreating God's people. They're treating God with contempt. And their self-serving agenda, well, it leads to exploitation of people they should have been caring for. Verse 22, we read, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In this vacuum of God's word, well, it is darkness that's spreading from Shiloh. And it spreads into all Israel. Through chapter 2, you notice this little word, all, In verse 14, this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 
Verse 22, Eli heard and kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Verse 23, he says to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Pride resists revelation. Hophni and Phinehas did what was right in their own eyes. It's a picture of darkness where God's word is absent. And it is a picture that we see around us, isn't it? These verses help us understand it, to understand the root cause. All through history we see events, we've heard of events and actions of great darkness, such mistreatment of other people made in God's image, and we think, how did it happen? In our news feeds today, war in Ukraine, shootings in London, conflict over the world, all manner of mistreatments and exploitation of people precious to God. And we find damaging ideologies or practices being promoted relentlessly. We read of new laws in Canada to offer euthanasia to people with disabilities. And we often find fierce attempts to silence those who call out the harm that these things cause. How does it happen? Pride resists revelation. Where the word of God is absent, darkness grows. But 1 Samuel is showing us that even in the darkness, God has a salvation plan. We thought of God's salvation plan last week as a river being at its source, hardly visible. And then as it flows, growing wider and fuller and faster until it's a strong, gushing flow towards the sea. And as it flows, God's first step is to establish his word. Where God's word is established, well, even in the darkest of places, there is wonderful hope. And this is our second point, hope as God's word is established. Five times through the narrative, the author brings us back to Samuel about a boy. What does he want us to see? Well, let's work through 2 verse 11. The boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Here's Samuel, and Eli's overseeing him, and Samuel's ministering under his supervision. But then 2 verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now Samuel's got priestly garments of his own. Then 2 verse 21, the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Samuel is not in the presence of Eli. He's ministering in the presence of the Lord himself. 2 verse 26. The young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. And 3 verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And I would have missed this if it wasn't pointed out to me, but that last one, 3 verse 1, it, it sounds like we're back to the beginning, except Eli's not called a priest anymore. He's just called Eli. It's Hannah's prayer of reversal in action. The Lord raises up Samuel as the humble priest, and he will bring down proud Eli and his sons. Back in 2 verse 27, a man of God comes to Eli. He brings a word, thus says the Lord. And the heart of the message is in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? 
There's a play on words here in the original language, the word for honor and fattening, well, they sound the same. By, by eating the Lord's sacrifices, they honor themselves instead of the Lord. They don't regard him or his word. They scorn, literally kick over his sacrifices and offerings. And so the Lord says he will bring that down and he will raise up a faithful priest. And 2 verse 35, we read that. The Lord says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what's in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And here is Samuel. And he's ministering before the Lord, and Eli's not called a priest anymore. And Eli's sleeping in his own place, away from the temple, but Samuel's sleeping in the temple near the ark. God has raised up a faithful priest. But did you notice verse 35, this faithful priest God speaks of will go in and out before his anointed forever. And so we're looking beyond Samuel. And this is the river beginning to grow. But God has promised a permanent priest, a permanent priest who will make his word known and offer a perfect sacrifice for sin and represent his people who depend on him. And in the letter of the Hebrews, we read of Jesus, the great high priest, who has made a single sacrifice for all sin, once for all at the cross, and who today is risen and he's ministering before the Lord in heaven. The author to the Hebrews writes, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever and consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Salvation is available. God's salvation plan flows. Perhaps we're here this morning very conscious of sin or when we admit our pride and rebellion and depend on Jesus, the great high priest, who died on the cross for us, there is forgiveness. Samuel's established as a priest, pointing forward to Jesus, the great high priest. But I want to suggest that in these chapters, the main focus is on Samuel being established as a prophet. So back in chapter 1, Hannah and her husband Elkanah are discussing when she would bring Samuel up to Shiloh to present him at the temple. And in chapter 1, verse 23, Elkanah says something slightly surprising. So you'll find that back on page 272, chapter 1, verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Why does Elkanah say, May the Lord establish his word. Because Samuel's already been born. So he can't be saying, you know, may the Lord do what he promised to do. It seems that Elkanah is speaking of Samuel's great purpose. Perhaps he recognizes the great famine of the word in Israel. He says, if you like to Hannah, whether or not you travel to Shiloh now or later, the big thing that matters is that the Lord establishes his word. Elkanah hopes for it. And the Lord does it. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Getting Samuel in place is all about the Lord establishing his word. And that's how chapter 3 fits in. Three times through the night, Samuel is woken by the voice of the Lord. But at this point, he doesn't know his voice. And he goes out to Eli, here I am. 
Well, verse 7 explains what's going on. 3 verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, that doesn't sound great at first reading, because Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord either. But there's a key difference, and it's the little word, yet. He did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But after the third time that the Lord calls, Eli realizes what's happening. Verse 8, he perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Eli's eyes were dim. He was almost spiritually blind, but he's got just enough awareness to work out. That's the Lord speaking. And so verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Maybe you've seen programs like David Attenborough's Planet Earth or Africa or Savannah. And there's those scenes during the dry season where the water is scarce and the riverbeds are cracked and dry. And there's great need. But then the rains break. And we see the water begin to trickle on the dry riverbed. And then the rains fall harder and it starts to surge forward. Well, chapter 3 is a moment like that. Here is the word of God coming into darkness. And Samuel grew, verse 19, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. From the word of the Lord was rare to the word of the Lord is everywhere, from proud Hophni and Phinehas perpetuating darkness to Samuel bringing God's word to all Israel. The salvation plan is advancing. The foundations are in place. Sometimes chapter 3 is used to suggest that we ought to seek the same experience as Samuel, so we we ought to seek to hear an audible voice from the Lord. But these chapters are not here to give us a pattern of how to try and hear God. These verses are a great moment in God's salvation plan. They show us the pattern for how God's salvation works. Our God who saves will establish his prophet so that his words will be spoken plainly to all people. And that's far, far better than seeking voices in the night. God's word is not hiding in the night. It's bursting forth plainly in the light. How wonderful the goodness and kindness of God. He will establish his word so that people afflicted and lost in darkness might find salvation and abundant life. That's the great hope we have here in London in 2023 because God's word is the bedrock of his salvation, which is our third point this morning. I've used the term bedrock because I guess if we're thinking of God's salvation as flowing like a river, The bedrock is the word. It's essential. Without the word of God, darkness abounds and there is no salvation. But the word of God brings salvation. There is light. His word is good. It is life-giving. In God's word, we find knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. God's word is living. It transforms. God's word gives certain hope. God's word is the foundation of his salvation. And God's word is established God's word is established. In Luke chapter 2, we meet another young boy. 
and his parents have taken him to the temple. And as they obediently, as they obediently fulfilled God's law, and Luke tells us the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Luke tells us this boy was in the temple too. He was a young man of God's word. All who heard him were amazed at the understanding and his answers. And Luke writes, Jesus increased with wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In this moment in the temple, Jesus is identified as the son of God. He is the eternal priest who offers a sacrifice once for all for sin. He is the eternal rescuing king, humble and obedient even to death on a cross. And he is the eternal prophet who declares God's salvation. In Luke chapter 9, we find Jesus on a mountain with the apostles, Peter, James and John. And it's a moment, well, reminiscent of Samuel's calling, the audible voice in the night. But here it's an audible voice from heaven and it declares, God declares, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him, listen to him. Jesus, the word made flesh, God's word fully and finally, eternally established. God has spoken. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Then writing later, Peter Well, he recalls that event on the mountain in 2 Peter, in the letter to 2 Peter. He says, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But then Peter goes on to speak of the apostolic word. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. God's word has been established and it's been proclaimed by his apostles This is the bedrock of his salvation, a lamp shining in a dark place. How great is God's kindness to us? What hope for a land where there is much darkness? In 1524, William Tyndale left England for Germany to seek to translate the Bible into English. When studying at Oxford, he's alleged to have said, They have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture until he is modelled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he's clean shut out of the understanding of scripture. In England, then, God's word was rare because the Hophnies and the Phineases of the day wanted to keep it rare. The Bibles were in Latin. There was a darkness. Salvation was hidden. Ignorance abounded. And Tyndale longed to see that darkness lifted. In 1526, copies of his English translation of the Bible started to be smuggled into England. But by 1536, Tyndale was betrayed and captured and martyred. And his last words reportedly were, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Well, it seems perhaps in answer to that prayer, two years later, King Henry VIII authorised an English Bible for the Church of England, which was largely Tyndale's work. Light in the darkness. I was at a meeting last week and heard a Christian lady who had converted from Islam describing it as coming out of darkness into the light. In her words, she said, you have no idea of the darkness. 
And then she went on to implore a number of Church of England bishops gathered in the room not to tamper with God's word. Because this word brings light. It leads us to salvation. As we look at the world around us, well, we are deeply saddened, aren't we, to see men and women and boys and girls in great distress and darkness. We see the futility flowing from the Hophnies and the Phineases who drive ideologies or practices that are contrary to God's word and his design for flourishing from the leaders or influences, from pressure groups to peers. Well, there is hope of a great reversal. God, who lifts up the needy from the ash heap through his salvation, has established his word that declares his salvation. And so at the beginning of a year, well, these chapters are a great reminder to us of how good the word of God is. And we have the great privilege to hold it out. And so wouldn't it be great at the start of a new year to be praying that the Lord would give us opportunities to hold this word out in a dark world, to be planning and partnering together to use the gifts we have to make it known in the office or classroom, in the university, the school gate, in the apartment block, on our street, on the streets, in the prisons, with strangers and friends, like beacons of salvation all over London and all over the world. It might be that you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We are really delighted you are here. Well, these verses show you where to start. Open God's word. It is life and light and salvation. Why not do that in 2023? Ask a friend to help you. Join the Christianity Explore course. As the Apostle Peter writes, you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And as we begin this new year together as a church family, well, these chapters urge us to listen to God's word because God's word is what will lead us as his people. We said last week, 1 Samuel is not a leadership manual. I've got here Shackleton's Way, the subtitle Leadership Lessons from the Great Antarctic Explorer. And books like this can be extremely useful. There's much wisdom to be learned. But 1 Samuel is not that kind of leadership manual. It's a book about God and his salvation plan. And God in his salvation plan wonderfully gives us the leadership we really need. Here's how John Woodhouse puts it in his commentary. He says, in response to the crisis in Israel, what did God do? Did he raise up a man with what we would call leadership gifts? Did he set up a new organizational structure for the nation? No. He sent his word. He provided for his word to come to all Israel. God's response to Israel's leadership crisis was the provision of his word. Leadership does matter, and it's God's word that leads us out of darkness into light. It's God's word that leads us home. God's people are led by his word. And so we also want 2023 to be a year where we as a church keep God's word at the center of all we do that we sit under it humbly, responding in obedience, that we listen to our gracious God and let him lead us in the way of salvation. Praise God for his word, the bedrock of his salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of sin and human pride,
You have established your word fully and finally so that we might know your salvation. Thank you for the great hope there is for all people because you have spoken. Please help us as a church to listen to you, that you might lead us by your wonderful word. And we ask this year that many people in London and beyond would encounter your salvation through your word and come from darkness into the light of life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.